Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Kayla Mason, and I'm so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. Today, I am honored to be joined by Richard Lentz to talk with him about his new book, Uncommon Unity, Wisdom for the Church in an Age of Division. And it's just a very fascinating conversation, especially as or at least here in America, our world becomes so much more uh, polarized, so much more divisive to where we focus on division and what divides us more than what unifies us. This is a much needed book. And so very grateful for Richard and his work and for us being able to have just this conversation. Now, if you enjoy this uh, type of learning, if you consider yourself a lifelong learner, one of the best things you could do is subscribe to my Substack to where I share all of the things that I am currently learning from, from books to podcasts to music to YouTube videos and literally just anything that I am just consuming and reading blog posts, pretty much anything along those lines I'm sharing on the Substack. And the a uh, couple of things that I do want to let you know if this happens to be your first time is this, is that we want to create a safe place to have the co- type of conversations that we're going to have today, because you can't necessarily have these conversations when people are more focused on the differences, when they're more focused on being right than focused on unity and focused on loving the people across from them or the other people in the conversation or the dialogue that they're having. And we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone and from anything and from everything, whether it's someone we agree with or it's something silly and trivial. And we do all of those things. At least I do all of those things because someone decided to do that for me and I want to pass it on to the next generation. And maybe you had someone like that, or maybe you wish that you had someone like that. And through doing the work, through learning about these things, through applying it to our lives, We can help the next generation succeed. And in in case of what we're going to talk about today, hopefully provide a little bit more unified church or unified country to the next generation. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Richard, and then we're going to go into the conversation. Richard Lentz is a is a senior consulting theologian in or at Redeemer City to City, New York's in New York City. He currently lives in Boston, though, and we talked about that a little bit. He was formerly provost and Andrew Melt, uh, much distinguished professor of theology at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts, and he is the author of Identity and Idolatry and the Fabric of Theology. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Richard, it is so good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. It is good to be here and uh, looking forward to an interesting conversation with you, Caleb. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, one of the places that I usually love to begin is I love hearing the story behind the book that was written or the work of art that was written. And so you've written this book, Uncommon Unity. And so I would just love to 
here? Where did this idea get birthed? How has it been, you know, festering and growing in you all the way to this book? Well, uh, thanks. It's a great question to open up with uh, for an author. Uh, tell us about how this uh, evolved. Uh, clearly, we live in partisan times, although that wasn't really the primary issue. I do want to I thought it were wise to kind of lower the temperature on our diversity discourse uh, on the right or the left, even that those categories we'll talk about, I hope, in the conversation uh, to come. But I'm more persuaded that the church, uh, across its um, breadth, its denominational shapes and sizes and traditions, needs to understand and wrestle with diversity more than it has Historically, we've thought much more about church unity and haven't taken seriously the symbiotic relationship that we see across all of the, the biblical uh, materials uh, about how unity and diversity relate. And of course, I'm trying to persuade folks in the book and through the book uh, that the created order is made in such a way that it reflects that unity and diversity at every turn. And we resist it by emphasizing one or the other uh, at great peril. So trying to uh, engage the conversation without yelling at somebody and also uh, bring some resources to bear, which aren't ordinarily brought to bear on this uh, topic. Hmm. Do you remember when you first started thinking about this or you first started having like the idea of like, why, why are we not more diverse in this you know we're we're the church do you remember what that yeah i, time I think was like i came at it from the other side why are we fragmenting so much both inside the church and uh here i i mean i wrote a small essay uh back in the 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 turn of the 20 20th century into the 21st century uh just saying that there wasn't enough glue that bound us together especially across the evangelical traditions and uh, which itself is an interesting phenomena. I talk about it at length in the book uh, as as a as a phenomena, uh, and so I was just trying to think out loud: how does our current fragmentation relate to classical conversations about the unity of the church? And almost all those conversations or literature on the unity of the church focused on structural issues, organizational issues. And very rarely would you ever uh, come across something that addressed cultural issues in light of the church's unity or its uh, odd relationship to diversity. And of course, then over the next two decades, uh, increasingly the diversity discourse got louder and louder and louder. And I thought this was a chance to... Uh, play a little bit of a Trojan horse uh, to come into this conversation about the unity of the church, but also address how does the church engage a culture uh, that's enamored by diversity, uh, but can't think positively about its role, and in particular about how we uh, belong together in and through our diversities. So uh, a curious, I think, argument, but I hope a addition to what has often been a very partisan uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. You mentioned how there's a difference between organizational and structural unity and the and diversity and uh, the cultural diversity and unity. Can you tease out what those differences are? Yeah, I, I think that 
classical discussions, at least in the religious uh, guild, uh, talked about the unity of the church largely in terms of uh, its polity. That is to say, uh, was there a single monarchical head to the church, uh, Roman Catholicism, that unified the church? Uh, was there a Republican uh, representative uh, polity, uh, kind of Reformed, Presbyterian, Lutheran understandings uh, of the church's unity, or Congregationalists that uh, weren't interested in unity beyond the local congregation? And I, I just thought those are important and interesting questions, but across history, the much more powerful and I think poignant question was how does the church's unity, uh, how is it influenced by cultural understandings of unity? Uh, and also then increasing in our time, how is it influenced by our cultural categories of what difference means? Uh, I, As I try to argue in the book, the, the Bible itself has some really interesting categories that help us understand difference and unity in surprising ways, unless we've thought about them and then they jump out at us as obvious, uh, but maybe not so obvious in our time. Hmm. Yeah. Talk about some of the ways to which we've been influenced by the the secular thoughts of um, cultural diversity. Yeah. I, I As I um, make a historical case, m much of our diversity discourse is rooted in the history of discrimination. And uh, on one side of the political spectrum or the other side, one either simply emphasizes it endlessly or ignores it on the other side. And I, I want to I take it seriously, but argue that it's not all inclusive of our discussions. So in uh, the history of democracy, as political theorists tell us, this is a radical uh, revolutionary form of uh, polity uh, for a people. Uh, we had left uh, at the time of the revolution this monarchical uh, polity uh, across uh, most of Western Europe and invented mostly almost from whole cloth a Republican or Democratic small d uh, polity where uh, we very sizably increased the number of people uh, who had a voice in governance, uh, what we say governance from below. But as we're increasingly aware now, there were a lot of people excluded at that time as well. Uh, women were not allowed to vote. African, they didn't gain the vote for another century or and a half almost. African-Americans were not granted the right to vote till after the Civil War. And even then, in many uh, and most uh, uh, localities, it was very difficult uh, for them to vote. Uh, and then the story of immigration across uh, two centuries uh, is all about the stereotypes uh, that uh, form of strangers, uh, those who don't speak our language, whatever that might have meant, or our customs, and were often excluded from the political process. So as uh, radical as it was to include many more than had ever been included before, re revolutionary, we also had a polity that understood how to exclude people. Losers of the argument in a democracy, uh, in a minority, 
um, lose. That's the way democracy works. Uh, and so recognizing that twin realities in democracy helps us understand how it is uh, over time uh, we began to be sensitive to those who have been excluded from the political process and uh, the history of discrimination, that is division uh, towards the outsiders is part of our story. Even if it's also, as uh, when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, we still had a metaphor of America as a melting pot. Uh, but uh, uh, maybe later on in the conversation, we'll get to the point where that melting pot boiled over and we began to realize not everybody was getting uh, acclimated uh, into the political process. So our categories are largely political categories uh, in our time, gender, race, ethnicity, and really only after the 60s uh, was uh, sexual orientation uh, become one of the big four, uh, what uh, some have called the uh, ethno-racial pentagon, that is the five criteria uh, that uh, the census uh, starting in 1970 required uh, of um, uh, demographers to take into account. Uh, were you white? Were you uh, African-American? Were you Hispanic? Uh, were you Asian uh, or were you other? Those were the five in the beginning. Uh, increasingly then uh, it emphasized our differences and the differences spilled over into other uh, conversations uh, like sex. Hmm. Yeah, let's talk about that and what you were mentioning about the melting pot and how it eventually spilled over and how it how it did that and like how how we see the effects of that today. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, I, I mean, I've written a book on the 60s and so let, let me take us back uh, yeah. Do a little bit of historical. No, I'm glad. I I was I was going to go there <laughs> next after this question. If you were going there, a little historical archaeology, uh, if you will, uh, that uh, what Tom Brokaw called once upon a time the greatest generation that those that fought in the Second World War thought of themselves as saving the world for democracy, uh, and in many ways. Uh, energized a whole generation to do remarkable things and make remarkable sacrifices. Uh, it was surprising when that generation uh, uh, brought the war to a close uh, that there was a, another cultural uh, set of wars going on uh, back home in America, that there were still deep segregation of African-Americans, uh, the immigration uh, policies of the 1960s brought massive new waves of uh, what were formerly uh, excluded uh, foreigners uh, to our shores from now many parts of the globe and not simply Western Europe, uh, we realized that um, we didn't all get along. We didn't see the world the same. Uh, we had different values. Uh, and for lots of very interesting and complex reasons, the 60s uh, served as a explosion of sorts uh, across uh, the American landscape. Uh, music changed radically in that era. Uh, our fashions changed radically in that era. Uh, there was a generational gap that emerges in that generation for the first time. Children thought of themselves as in some ways wiser 
uh, than their parents. Uh, the older generation was looked askance at uh, that was turning uh, traditional understandings upside down. We became a youth culture in, in that era. Uh, and it, it surely infiltrated the church, both in the mainstream church and in the independent churches. Uh, evangelism took place now primarily in high schools, uh, among the parachurches, uh, Young Life, Youth for Christ, and on college campuses. Uh, that's where converts uh, were to be primarily found. And it was remarkable uh, that uh, these institutions grew massively almost overnight, colleges and uh, uh, high schools. Uh, 19, uh, early in the 1960s, 1950s, uh, you had... Uh, a disproportionately small number of citizens that would have gone on to college. Uh, by the early 1970s, something like 60 uh, or 65 percent of citizens are headed off to college. Massive uh, new industry uh, called higher ed uh, emerges. Uh, and now, uh, what are we going to do with these folks? Uh, and education itself becomes uh, uh, radically uh, changed, uh, if you will. It's also in this era that television uh, becomes pervasive. Uh, 1945, there are less than 10,000 television sets. By 1970, there are something like 30 million television sets. It's um, overnight, we've become a television culture. And what television does is homogenize uh, uh, cultures, or at least try to. And uh, the revolt against the television age uh, uh, is another interesting technology story to tell that begins to divide us as well. Whereas once we might have thought we really were all the same, we began to reckon with the reality that we were not all the same. And I make the case uh, that that discovery, that cultural discovery, can be very fruitful and dangerous at the same time. Hmm. Yeah. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, I think it's very fruitful when we recognize uh, that differences. And as I say, almost awkwardly in the book, there are many different kinds of differences. But when differences enrich a relationship, because you see things that you didn't see on your own, you see it through the eyes of another, those relationships become uh, significant. And so I think that's where it's fruitful. Marriages that learn how spouses uh, uh, are not to be homogenous, uh, but how they complement. And I want to be careful how you use that language, uh, that their differences bring out in the other important things that might not have otherwise been seen. And the world might be seen uh, in, in richer ways, richer tones. Now, the danger, if you will, uh, you just use sticking to the metaphor of marriage, is when uh, spouses think uh, there is only one side, and it's my side, uh, my views, uh, my values, and the, uh, the spouse must uh, somehow meet up to mine. And when we bump into those differences in that fashion, then it's very dangerous and destructive and pulls us apart, becomes oppressive, uh, to use uh, contemporary jargon. Hmm. I want to go back to what you uh, were talking about the 1960s. What's something that happened in the 1960s 
that is still f- probably affecting us today or society like society wise that um maybe we have just forgotten about just because it's 60 years later, later. amen amen I think there are revolutionary decades across American history. It's probably true uh, uh, most in most cultural situations. But if you think about the 1770s, the 1860s, and the 1960s, about 100 years apart, whether it's true or not, uh, as a non-historian, I think there are patterns. The revolutionary character of the 1960s was the loss essentially of optimism in our cultural institutions, which we have uh, uh, continued to live in the shadow of. Uh, So the assassinations of JFK and RFK, of MLK and uh, uh, others shook the nation. uh, And we began to ask questions about our own destiny. Uh, The Vietnam War was the first war fought by America where there was enormous uh, protest. Uh, and it was a very unpopular uh, war. We began to be suspicious of uh, those who uh, dove into the war uh, without a consensus. And I think finally Watergate at the end of the decade uh, made us all skeptical about politics uh, and about uh, institutions of power. Uh, we became much more sensitive, I think, as a culture. So you stack all those together along with the other waves of protest uh, in uh, music, uh, music changes from largely uh, folk music to rock and roll, a much harder uh, prophetic um, dissonant uh, sort of music, uh, fashion changes, that becomes uh, rebellious against an earlier, uh, what was often thought of as conformist uh, fashions of the 1950s. Uh, in these and many other ways, the world is, the cultural world is turned upside down. I, I remember my parents being aghast uh, at uh, how long my hair was back in the 1960s. Seems rather mild uh, now by our standards, uh, but I, I began to think how important it was to be different from my parents. Uh, that, that uh, I think, is a common trait uh, uh, from the 1960s uh, onwards. Uh, and, and so now even our language of generations, of the baby boomers, of the millennials, of the Gen Zs, is all built and wired into this notion that generations function differently than previous ones. Uh, And so the patterns that bound us together across centuries uh, now appears to be broken. Uh, One of the funny uh, memories I have of that era also is how important it was for me to be different. Uh, I wore long hair, uh, bell-bottom jeans, uh, ragged clothes, listened to loud music, but I I did it with everybody that was my age. Uh, So there was no sort of being radical uh, because we were radically conforming with each other. Uh, so it, is, it was, there were a lot of ironies in the revolutions of the 1960s as we've come uh, to learn. And I think that's um, those patterns in, in different ways, uh, but they continue on 
uh, and I think it's important. Uh, one one more little anecdote. Yeah. Uh, if you listen to any popular um, music uh, in our own day, it's remarkably linked to the music of the 1960s and not to the 1950s. There was a musical shift that took place that continues to resonate. So uh, my music uh, growing up in uh, that era uh, is still palatable to my children and my grandchildren. Uh, whereas my parents' music, if I could just, again, think personal memories, that's a whole different world. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's as if they, they came from another planet, uh, musically speaking. Uh, so mm. anyway, that's, uh, 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 we could talk about the 60s on and on. It, it is such an interesting decade. The first decade, that's a television decade. Not only does television come on, but we now have a record of major events of the decade visually. And that is striking. Yeah. What you even said about the music, it makes me think of like that, that probably leads to a greater uh, separation between the generations because you can't bond over. It's one less thing that you can bond over. over. Yeah. No. Amen. One other thing I wanted to ask you about, because I, it's one of those things, like I really hadn't thought about it, even though it's such a very obvious thing is, um, you know, I remember like learning about like world war two in in school and everything and that seemed like such a long time ago and then you learn about the 1960s and it feels like okay that wasn't too long ago (laughs) but in reality they're only 15 years apart from each other and so i would just be curious to hear like any like inner any or how those two time periods like play together, like how like the end of world war two happens. And then 15 years later, all of this massive change happens in the night. And you alluded to it some as well of people coming home and finding that things are just a lot different, but any, any other thoughts? Yeah, on that? no, that's a great, and it's a great observation. And it surely is true. Uh, we think of history as a uh, distant and near, and the 60s yeah. seem a little bit closer to us, uh, whereas uh, the 1940s seemed like another century uh, in in so many ways. I, I, uh, just one, a couple of quick observations. Uh, uh, starting in Europe, Europe experiences the two world wars very differently than we do we did in America. Uh, they were devastated uh, by the wars. The wars were fought on their soils. Millions and millions are killed uh, of their uh, countrymen. And uh, they experienced the depth of despair in a way that we did not. So I think the bubble of optimism burst much sooner in Europe uh, about the cultural progress than it does for America. And I think the, the 60s began to pop that optimism bubble at, at and did it in some manner as a surprise. Those who came home from the war, who lived in these pre-manufactured neighborhoods, who had nine to five uh, largely white-collar jobs, uh, thought the, they had everything. And the reality was uh, that there, there, there were many that had fought in the war, many who had supported uh, the war effort, that were left behind uh, because of segregation primarily, but also one thinks that of uh, many women 
uh, who supported the war effort at home in the factories uh, that came uh, to realize after the war, uh, they became second-class citizens in any number of ways. And so that was an enormous uh, revolution. So you have uh, not only the civil rights movement of the 60s, but it's attached to and gives uh, great cause to uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, the, the second, what we call the second feminist uh, movement of the 1960s, uh, followed by several other forms of protest. What's interesting is if you look back at the 1860s, uh, the, the, in the aftermath of the Civil War, those two major movements uh, for uh, racial equality and gender equality also uh, uh, formed protest movements of significance uh, in the aftermath of the really cla uh, cataclysmic war on America, fought on American soil. So I, I think there are so many variables in the 1960s, it's hard to get a hold of all of them. One, one final thought, um, apologies mm -hmm. for going on here. No, this is great. The standard historiography, that is the standard way we tell the history of the 1960s was that it was a revolt against tradition. And there is great truth in that, uh, a revolt against traditional habits, rhythms, customs, for lots of good reasons. But also uh, that the evangelical renaissance uh, that took place in the 1960s uh, uh, radically, I mean, it's unbelievable uh, the way evangelicals that had separated from fundamentalism uh, grew enormously. And many commentators thought uh, that the evangelical uh, witness uh, was a word uh, to provide safety and security against all these other changes. And I just think that's a wrong way to tell the story, that the evangelicals were as much a protest movement in the 60s as was uh, any of the civil rights movements or second feminism. Uh, and it was a revolt against uh, civil religion, against the establishment of uh, religious powers. Uh, and uh, you could see it in the Jesus music, which was loud. You could see it in the um, uh, the fashions. Uh, I mean, I, I remember having friends and I was uh, I did not grow up in a religious uh, home as such, or at least not a one where that was the regular rhythm. And I remember uh, mm -hmm. with friends uh, after I came to to know Jesus uh, uh, we all like to wear long hair because, you know, Jesus wore long hair. I mean, that was the kind of mentality. Uh, it wasn't, um, I, I, didn't, I didn't come to believe in Jesus because that was just a traditional thing to do. And I was safe and secure there. Uh, that That's just not the way the story went. And, and I think when the evangelical church loses its prophetic edge, as I think it has, it, it ceases to be uh, vital and vibrant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I want to look to today, and I do want to get into some of the the critiques of what we can do better. But I want to start with whenever you see like unity in the church or diversity in the church, what is most encouraging to you yeah. right now? Um, most blessings come with curses, if I could put it that way. Yeah. There are there are good yeah. things and there are bad things uh, with the the present reality. 
I think we're living through the demise of denominations, that is, churches that uh, think of their identity largely as uh, a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a Methodist, fill in the blank, uh, if you will. Those denominations filled a purpose for two centuries or so, and I think in the post-60s period, really post-90s, uh, many uh, folks who sit in pews don't even know what denomination that church might belong to. The, 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 the demise of denominations also has opened up, and here is the positive, I think, open up the possibility that there is much greater collaboration across diverse churches than historically there were. The boundary markers of denominationalism often inhibited collaboration, collaboration on uh, social projects, on uh, charitable projects, uh, all, all the way down the right on evangelism and uh, uh, the like. So I do think uh, that this era in which churches now belong to networks, uh, the networks are kind of loose affiliations, however. And I think that uh, has created the opportunity, has opened the door for us to think more about how we can get along. The danger is as denominations fade, uh, we lose a sense of where we do belong in the broad apostolic traditions uh, that have come down through the centuries. Uh, and so we, we, we have an increasingly, I think, thin or superficial kind of set of convictions. Uh, and that's probably not the best um, consequence in my mind. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other critiques of today regarding it that you'd, that you'd say? Um, I think that uh, often the danger uh, in an age uh, which prizes diversity when we're talking about religious consequences uh, is that that diversity becomes an end in itself. And when we uh, simply appreciate or appropriate everybody as if our differences are not only important, but not really important uh, as a source of division, I think we, we give up so much uh, when it comes to why we have the convictions and the principles that we do. So I, I want to, uh, you know, as many before may have argued uh, for a, a principled pluralism. Uh, that is to say that we, we learn how to relate to others who are different in part because we know who we are and we know our fundamental principles and they are uh, for us, important. It doesn't mean we can't talk with others. It doesn't mean that we only can yell uh, there, but it also doesn't mean we all really believe the same thing at the end of the day. No, we don't. Uh, I think that's unfair to the very nature of religious conviction, uh, really to the nature of conviction itself. Uh, so uh, without uh, using this language of difference too often, in that regard, there are some differences which are trivial, uh, which we ought not say they are points of division. And so uh, churches uh, that don't understand that, that argue too much about the things that don't matter, the color of the rug, the nature of the lighting, 
the temperaments of um, uh, fellow persons in the church or whatever, I think that's incredibly destructive. Uh, and I think that it's important uh, for the church to be clear about its convictions, but also to recognizing that the gospel calls us to be gracious and charitable uh, as we deal with our differences. Uh, and we don't give up our differences, especially the ones that are really foundational or principled. Uh, I, that is to say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. I, I realize that my Jewish friends or my Muslim neighbors do not believe the same. Mostly, however, that doesn't inhibit me from having interesting conversations with my Jewish friends or my Muslim neighbors because I don't want them to give up their core convictions either to enter into the conversation with me. I do think one of us is right. Uh, that is to say, I, I think truth matters. However, because truth matters, I think grace matters every bit as much. And it's that graciousness uh, and generosity of spirit uh, that is so critical. I think it's reflected in, in our founding documents uh, in the Bible. And so I just, um, yeah, we, we, another conversation uh, for another day, there's some controversy in our own time as to whether Christians ought to just start yelling because we're losing the battle. I think that's a dreadful strategy. And I think it's counter- uh, not only counter-cultural, but counter-Christian as well in mm. in the wider, deeper sense. Why do you think we're so uncomfortable with differences, whether that be differences inside our own different branches of Christianity or even in other faiths yeah. as well? Like, it could just be my naiveness, but I'm like, it will— it, like we know for certain, Jesus was not that way. Jesus was very comfortable with people who are different yep. than him. But why? Why do you think we're so uncomfortable yeah. with that? That's an, a really important question, and there are multiple variables uh, for sure. I think there's an innate human tendency to stereotype others. I, I, I that's true across ages. But so I I don't think it's unique to us that our nature is so dysfunctional that other ages really did get along with each other across differences. Uh, so I, I want to say there's an enduring perennial issue of our dysfunctions, uh, the, the brokenness, the, what Augustine called the bentness of our hearts. And that leads us always to be suspicious of others. Uh, and so uh, that, that great story that opens up the Bible of Adam and Eve um, and tells this really interesting story that after they, they both take and eat, they become suspicious of each other. Uh, that is our, one of our founding um, true myths is, is that sin or human dysfunction allows us, permits us, encourages us to be suspicious of others. So uh, that's a perennial issue. Our, our present era, uh, what a friend of mine calls the uber tribal era, where we all revert back to our tribe to make sure we are uh, protected against uh, outside forces. Uh, that's true across the political spectrum, true across the religious spectrum, I think is a unique uh, uh, difficulty uh, in our time. 
and it, I think it links back to many of the cultural factors we've already mentioned in part, uh, namely the emergence of a technology uh, that at one time homogenized us, now separates us. Uh, so the, the bounce uh, from a television era to an internet era to a social media era, many have written on the debilitating effects of, of that. Uh, and I, I think that's one significant factor. I'm not a technologist, but I read it enough in that era to know technology is not innocent. It does many wonderful things and many dilatory things uh, because uh, we humans use it uh, uh, both to uh, solve uh, complex medical problems and create nuclear weapons that can kill a whole uh, uh, population. So we can use technology for good and for uh, uh, less than good purposes, uh, so to speak. That would be one uh, episode. I think our politics post Watergate uh, also, uh, we don't trust each other across our divisions. Uh, as many political commentators remind us, uh, once upon a time, uh, judges were approved by a massive majority of Republicans and Democrats together. In the last 10, 15 years or so, most judicial appointments, at whatever level, are contested appointments. Uh, I'm not sure that's uh, the cause, that's a symptom, uh, that's a consequence of our distrust in power, uh, uh, political powers as well. I think there's an intellectual story here uh, that uh, comes from the Enlightenment uh, that many have, uh, as they've narrated that uh, story across the generations, uh, uh, the influences of the Enlightenment uh, uh, that take us away from a transcendent objective uh, reality and reality becomes uh, simply a function of my own internal perceptions. Uh, truth becomes relative. Uh, that shows itself up in a variety of ways. And I've told the, that story way too simply, but I do think you can tell that story with that consequence, uh, even if it also must be told much more carefully than I just did. Hmm. What are some of the the aspects of diversity that um, that you wish were talked about yeah. more often or unity too? Yeah. I, I wish we would talk about a lot of our differences uh, and uh, they can be temperamental. A marriage that doesn't talk about difference of temperaments, difference of backgrounds, differences of experiences uh, will, will itself um, implode. Uh, so it is, I think, with organizations uh, uh, there are, uh, depending on the kind of organization we're talking about, uh, significant differences about how work is carried on. And we we suppose because all persons of a similar vocation have uh, no important differences, uh, that has an enormous consequence. I was provost of a faculty for a number of years and the stereotype that all faculty members, professors in higher ed are, are all alike. I'm here to tell you that is so fictional as uh, you, it's just wrong. 
Now, are there some tendencies of commonality? Sure, but there are far more differences, even on a faculty and of a small uh, department uh, that all are uh, organized around sociology or um, you know biomechanics or whatever it might be. There are really interesting differences, and when we can celebrate some of those differences, I think it makes our work much more interesting. If also on occasion we will bump into more conflicts, uh, and that is always, I think, a fear we have when we emphasize our differences. Lo and behold, we're going to bump into conflicts. Uh, I have never met somebody that really enjoys conflict. I I have. Many friends uh, who jump into conflicts way too quickly, uh, but conflict is not, it's not emotionally satisfying. It's uh, uh, incredibly, um, what has, has a powerful impact upon our own physical uh, uh, nature. Uh, it, it undermines trust, all, all of that. Uh, and so I think sometimes we shy away from difference for fear uh, that we might bump into conflict uh, hmm. instead of uh, learning if there is such a thing, how to navigate conflict wisely. That That's a great challenge. Uh, and as I say towards the end of the book, wisdom is in such short supply in the conversation about diversity uh, because we want it to be one thing and not another. Talk about why refusing to engage in the conflict like isn't a good option, because I think that kind of is the tendency right now of like, I'm just going to what for whatever the difference is. I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to hope they go right. away. Maybe I hope they leave my church. <laughs> Maybe I hope they leave my cup. Like talk about why that's not an option or why that's not a good option. Yeah. I, I a couple of reasons. The big theological reason is because we're made to belong to each other. God wires us uh, uh, as our creator to be relational. That is, we are we are not isolated, autonomous individuals, uh, according to our creator. Uh, and so when relationships are torn asunder, uh, it's not a good thing. And so we have to deal, however, on this side of eternity with the reality that some of our differences aren't going to be settled, uh, that, that conflict doesn't always, no matter how wise uh, a person is, don't always uh, result in a positive outcome. And so even more reason for us uh, to be courageous and generous and gracious as the primary virtues when we're dealing with conflict. Uh, we are much more suspicious by nature and I think by culture of somebody else's motives than our own motives. Uh, we, we think our own motives are relatively pure. Uh, uh, so the refrain, I am sorry, but uh, then we fill in the blank with my excuse. Uh, whereas we don't permit others to have an excuse. Uh, we are suspicious of others. Uh, and I think that's the, um, that, that's why this conversation about diversity is so important for, for the church, for our culture, for organizations to wrestle with. Now, 
However, having said that, if we so emphasize diversity of any kind to the point where we don't also wrestle with the symbiotic relationship of belonging to each other in those differences, then those differences become, I think, dangerous uh, by, by all accounts. So we have lost the cultural conversation about what binds us together. Historically, uh, theologians have talked about what it is that we have in common, the common good or common grace. Uh, that conversation uh, needs to be rehabilitated and brought back into the public square, although I recognize uh, that um, many have been trying to bring it back into the public square uh, and are often shouted down uh, that uh, from the right or the, the left. Uh, and so, but I, I don't think it's some project we ought to give up on. We, we need to talk about, we need to talk more about what binds us together, what is our common good, and what are our interesting differences. Yeah. Can you tease out just the common good some more? I know that you give plenty of examples throughout the book of what binds us together, but I think you're, I mean, you hit it. We've talked about it so much in this conversation that doesn't get talked about a whole no. lot. And so we end up forgetting about what unites us. So yes. can you talk yes. about what no, unites I, I us? I think that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, in some ways, what unites us uh, again I, I want to begin at the beginning. Uh, God has made us in such a way that we belong to each other. So there's something hardwired in us uh, that ought to bind us together across our differences. I, I open up the book with this story of worshiping with a small uh, village in southern Zimbabwe uh, several years back. And it was a very, it was an isolated village. It was a Christian village, often uh, in parts of Zimbabwe, uh, if the elders uh, embrace a, a particular religious conviction, the whole village uh, follows their example. Uh, uh, the service began uh, late on Saturday night uh, in a very different way than anything I ever experienced. Uh, and through translation, I began to understand the nature of the service. Uh, the women uh, and children came in on the left, the men on the right. All the singing was carried on with dancing. That was a part and parcel. Uh, there were many long sermons through the night. Folks would uh, fall asleep, wake back up. It was just a natural part of the rhythm uh, that religion uh, was part and parcel of their lives. I'm very different. I, I'd get very frustrated if church started at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. I didn't get home till 10 o'clock the next morning. Uh, it would drive me crazy, uh, and yet uh, there was a it, there was something in common we shared across these really radical differences. And now, easy easier to say that because it was a long way away, and I wasn't staying there. So, what would it have been like to live there, having been in the first um, this first community on this side? And going secondly to there, that would be a great challenge. But I think uh, to, to the anecdote, to the consequence, is that uh, we, we don't often recognize in the midst of our differences what we do have in common. So I want to uh, suggest that often a great 
piece of music, a great piece of film, uh, a great piece of literature will often bind us together. It transcends our ordinary expectations. Uh, not always, but often, uh, if you will. And so I think we need to get out of the cocoon of thinking all reality begins and ends nationally in Washington, D.C. I do think politics mm -hmm. has taken over our public discourse, and we don't talk about lots of other interesting things uh, that that matter. Uh, I, I, uh, I work once a month um, for a week in New York City. I live in Boston. Uh, these are great cities that are divided in their sports loyalties uh, uh, enormously. Uh, uh, that Sports has become another one of those anecdotes for what divides us. But even when I'm with a Yankee fan uh, or a Jets fan, uh, once we get beyond the superficial uh, differences, there's something enjoyable about talking about baseball, uh, for example, uh, about a sport that transcends uh, simple regional loyalties. Now, that may not be the case in all rivalries. Uh, I'm sure uh, mm -hmm. friends of Ohio State don't exactly get along with friends from Michigan. Uh, and, uh, you know, we go across the country in that regard. But I, I do still nonetheless think and hope and, and experience real friendship across those sports loyalty. In fact, we mostly make fun of it. We, we enjoy the um, the superficial nature of our differences because there's an underlying a greater unity. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes me think of, you know, ju just as you were saying, you know, that can help us, you know, seeing the transcendent in it all that helps us um, appreciate the unity and differences. Is there anything else that can help us manage through that tension more of appreciating the differences and valuing the differences while at the same time um focusing on what unifies us and what unites us as well i think it will always be aspirational in nature there's no good final solution here so i, I want to be careful yeah. of creating an optimism if we just did step one step two step three however mm -hmm. it is aspirational we ought to aspire to uh work on our differences and think more about that which we have in common. So uh, uh, yes, there are a couple of practical steps. I think it depends on the context we're talking about, yeah. uh, how we do that. So a symphony, another great illustration of unity and diversity. How, how does it make the sound finally come out in such a way that it coheres? So the uh, violins and the trumpets aren't battling each other, but they are... Um, complimenting might not be the right word, but they they fuse together in a way that the sound is richer because of their differences. And I think that's a great analogy. How do we learn to work together? I think uh, uh, we were just talking about sports. How do teams learn to work together? Most teams, uh, uh, individual players do not have the same role as everybody else on the team. How do you learn to work together? I, I do think, uh, leaving aside those metaphors, those models, although I think they're, they are powerful if we think about their consequences, suffering and crisis often are the motivators 
to get beyond our conflicts, uh, to recognize how fragile human life is. Uh, and when we reckon with that, and it could be for any number of reasons, we become much less arrogant about ourselves and much more gracious towards those who help us, who, who uh, help us navigate difficult times. And so in a strange way, I'm not going to look for crisis or uh, ways to suffer. I just know those are often red flags uh, to my um, lack of humility. It creates a kind of humility if and uh, not always, but if uh, the supportive community is rich enough uh, to, to move uh, there. Uh, and so I, I know that suffering across the globe and suffering of certain sorts often can lead to bitterness and, and lament. And there are occasions when that's um, entirely reasonable. But I, I also think we need to be able to move not beyond our suffering, but through our suffering in ways uh, that um, help us um, relate to each other more graciously uh, and more humbly. Yeah, I think that's really good. What you said of like this is like we're not going to reach the point of complete unity in this, and it is very aspirational. And it even just made me think of like the other dynamic is, and I like. I think about this all the time is like in relationships, you don't control the other person. And so even though you may appreciate the differences in someone else, or you feel like you're trying to get that right, they may be very focused on the differences in their own life or the differences in you. And so what have you learned about how to deal with a situation like that mm. while you're still trying to fight for the unity yeah. and appreciating their differences? When the other person, it's like they're not even playing the same game, or they're not wanting to play the same game that you're playing. Yeah. That it's a um, a difficult question because I think that my way too simple answer is wisdom is required. <laughs> uh, but what is wisdom, yeah. and how do you get yeah. it? It's not easy. It, again, I think it's aspirational. Uh, at, but I I think. As the Proverbs say, wisdom knows when to answer a fool and when not to answer a fool. Regardless of whether the other person is viewed as a fool, sometimes you just have to give up and walk away. But sometimes you don't give up and walk away. And I think our tendency is uh, to recognize, I'm not going to persuade everybody. Uh, there are people that... Uh, aren't going to persuade me and others that will. Uh, so we, we are strange creatures, uh, we humans, in, in that regard. Sometimes, uh, and I, I, it, it's happened to me, It's uh, I, we tell a funny story in our family of one of our children who uh, was um, in her young teenage years uh, learning to babysit others, uh, helping uh, some neighbors with their children coming home one evening and saying, you know, parents just need to learn how to discipline children. And, you know, as a parent, you, you kind of chuckle, uh, but you, you recognize they learn certain things that maybe you were trying to say, but they heard it differently. 
so we sometimes have ears to hear and sometimes we don't. Uh, and uh, even this biblical imagery of having eyes to see but not seeing or ears to hear and not hearing, I think that's a, a nice way to illustrate that there are some conversations where um, you say, aha, uh, wow, I didn't recognize that, even though you may have heard it before. And there are other conversations where you say, no, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and uh, we need to often be patient, uh, gracious, but sometimes walk away because we are not God. A, a, a recent book uh, has come out about limitations, human limitations. And we need to accept the reality that we're not omnipotent uh, or omniscient. We don't know everything. And uh, accepting our limits sometimes is difficult, that we can't persuade everybody. Uh, and that is, I think, a product of wisdom. Uh, and wisdom itself emerges often uh, in suffering. Well, I got one other thing I want to ask you about. But before that, I know that we could talk about so many other things in the book, but is there anything else just top of mind or just around what we've been talking about that you want to make sure that we cover or mention or just any uh, thoughts or ideas like yeah, that? Yeah, no, you're, you're kind. I really appreciate the conversation. And, I, you know, this is one small attempt at persuading um, uh, really the more conservative um, audience uh, that we ought not give up uh, on a culture that is apparently as divided as we are. Uh, that mm -hmm. part of our prophetic witness in a time like ours is to work on those differences, to continue to communicate there are common goods uh, and there is security and safety, not in isolating ourselves into our tribal communities, uh, but in relating across uh, really important differences. And I think the gospel, uh, that great story of redemption, is a story about being included when we were formally excluded by our own actions. So it is to be reflected in our own lives that we, we ought to be motivated to be inclusive. Uh, it's a loaded term uh, in our time. and uh, uh, But I think it has resonance echoes uh, across history uh, of the ways uh, that we are to treat uh, the stranger, the outsider, those on the margins because of the way we've been treated. And uh, that is a challenge to become self-reflective enough to get outside of ourselves. Uh, and therein is, I, I think, I hope, some argument, uh, persuasion, uh, in the book to do so, and uh, some good biblical reasons why that makes sense. Yeah. The last thing that I want to ask you about, and you touched on a little bit, is just wisdom mm. as well, of the role that wisdom plays just in unity, diversity, differences, and how to manage mm. all that. So would you mind just closing our conversation, just yeah. talking about the role of wisdom in this and how how we can become more wise in situations like what we've been talking about today. Yeah, again, I think it's aspirational. It, um, and I think you gain wisdom in a couple of ways. Uh, by being around wise people, uh, by recognizing your own limitations, 
uh, and uh, in in and through often uh, reckoning with how fragile uh, you are in the midst of a crisis or of suffering. And it, it is not a function of your education or your credentials or your reputation or your age, though largely older folks tend to be wiser on average, not by any means yeah. uh, without enormous exceptions uh, because of the difficulty of a life lived uh, in, in that regard. I think in some way, you know wisdom if you're looking for it when you bump into it. And so oftentimes you're surprised uh, by wisdom because it stands out in an age which is so consumed with uh, credentials, uh, with information, uh, with uh, argument. And wisdom is uh, rich, deep, um, engaging, interesting. It just is. Uh, and I think that's the challenge uh, for us as a, a culture that lacks wisdom because we're so enamored by information different from other ages. It's not as if there are other ages that were wiser than ours. It's just that our age has a unique idolatry of information. Uh, and information uh, now is the um, all pervasive air that we breathe. So when we have a question, we Google uh, looking for the answer. Uh, and that having a massive amount of information at our fingertips leads us to believe that uh, all of reality is simply informational. But we are creatures uh, that are far more complex uh, than simply, uh, um, as um, some have said, uh, garbage intake. Um, what, what, what's the yeah, gar garbage in, garbage, garbage out. in, garbage out. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think that wisdom uh, is of a different sort entirely. And we need to uh, learn how to cultivate it, try to find wise people in our lives and um, try to glean as much as we can. That comes with listening. And uh, so let me commend you, uh, Caleb, as we close here. Uh, you you are a terrific listener, and often listen, oh, thank you. often listening goes hand in hand with questions, uh, honest questions, uh, and not sure what the answers are. That's why you have a relationship, uh, a conversation. And so I, I I appreciate the conversation and the opportunity yeah. uh, to be heard uh, um, uh, here. So thanks, many yeah. thanks. You're you're welcome. I actually do have one other question sure. that I thought of while you were talking about that. Can you tease out the difference between information and wisdom? Yeah. Because just what you said, like I even, like I know that that could be a tendency for me because I love learning mm -hmm. and everything. But just because you're learning stuff doesn't mean that you're becoming more wise. Right. I think information is often out of context. So it's bits of facts or non-facts as often is the case on the internet. Whereas wisdom uh, understands information in context, uh, a wider context, a larger context. And it's that wider perspective, uh, knowing how complex reality is, uh, that uh, mere mastery of information doesn't make one wise. It may make one smart in some narrow sense of that word, uh, but it's recognizing how things fit together uh, 
that makes one wise. And here we're talking about uh, how how reality fits together, how people fit together uh, in that respect. So uh, there is a, a significant difference. And I I'm I'm often enamored with information. So I I yeah. I, I love um, trivia, uh, but I recognize that. If I spend too much on trivial matters, my life becomes more trivial too. That's good. Well, Richard, I know that people are going to want to pick up the book Uncommon Unity and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do all those things? Um, I'm not sure where actually. I'm, I'm in the oh. midst of trans- <laughs> transitions uh, in many yeah. ways. So uh, don't have a website, don't have a podcast. Uh, home, home for me is with City to City, uh, Redeemer City to City in New York City, mm-hmm. although I live in Boston. Uh, so working on projects there so I can be truly reached uh, through that vehicle uh, and in probably uh, through uh, emails. I'm happy to uh, have more conversations. Awesome. And then they could just get the book anywhere, Amazon, local yes, bookstores. Every, everywhere and anywhere, I guess. Uh, so I, I'm grateful for... Uh, It's a wider distribution. And so I'm glad that it's getting a hearing. Awesome. Well, Richard, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for the wonderful conversation and just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Caleb. I appreciate it. And I'll continue to think of you and your work uh, on the podcast. It is important work. Oh, thank you so much. So coming out of that conversation, I think probably my biggest takeaway from the book and from the conversation is just the impact that the 60s had on us and the the, the technological differences as well of starting with TV and there not being very many, or very many uh, channels or programs to watch to that becoming they're just becoming a lot more and they're becoming a lot more options. And then eventually that moved to YouTube and to Facebook and to Instagram and to TikTok and so on and so forth to where there's not a ton that unites us. You know, thinking about TV shows that used to unite people that everybody would watch on Monday night or Thursday night or Wednesday night or whatever night that it was. And that became the conversation and even just thinking about in my own lifetime, and again, I'm not that old, um, but just realizing how for me it was everybody watched The Office, and now there's a lot, a lot of shows that that are like The Office, but there's a lot of different options because of streaming and everything, and just realizing that we need to figure out what unifies us, and what he talked about there of uh, finding the pieces of literature, the pieces of art, the the narratives that can that can unify us. And that and I mentioned it also, but just how close World War II was to the influential decade of the 1960s. And there was just a lot of stuff happening all throughout that time period. So those are just a, the just a few things that have got me thinking about this. And if you want to keep learning about some of the things that I'm thinking about and some of the things that I'm learning from, one of the best things you could do, subscribe to my Substack, where I give you all of the books that I'm reading, articles, so on and so forth, just the things that are making me think and some of the things that I'm learning from as well. And 
Again, the link to that is in the show notes. And yeah, I think that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Richard for being on the podcast and for such a wonderful conversation. Thank you to Sam Massey for providing the music for this podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.